0: Well, we've got, uh, we've got more to learn from the Apostle Paul today, so go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. The way that the human mind works, we really seem to like it when a very grand idea, a, a major complex concept, can be distilled down into a condensed saying or a phrase that's easy to remember, that's easy to quote, that's easy to understand. We're especially fond of these high-powered sayings when they come from people that we really trust. St. Augustine of Hippo lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D. He was one of the most influential and prolific theologians of the first thousand years of the church. In addition to several commentaries on specific books of the Bible, he's really well known for his apologetics work. There were many... False teachers that he battled against in his day and wrote against church heresies and in doing so helped refine the way that the church thinks about its doctrine. Augustine wrote some very important works such as On the Trinity, a book called Confessions, which is an expanded version of his testimony about how the Lord saved him at a later stage in life and brought him to serve the Lord God, and a book called The City of God, which describes in a hopeful way how the church can keep their eyes on Christ even while the world around it is filled with sin and disparity. He had a lot to say about God's sovereignty and about the will of man. And his writings would have a major influence on the main characters of the Protestant Reformation that really shaped the church through the early 16th century. In preaching a sermon on 1 John 4, St. Augustine summed up the idea of Christian freedom. and That's a concept we've been working on here through the last couple of chapters of Galatians, Paul has really tried to help these Galatians understand that through the grace of Jesus Christ, we've not only been set free from our sin, but we've been set free from this idea that we can work our way into heaven by our good deeds. There were false teachers that were trying to convince these Galatians that, that you, you need more than just Jesus. You've got to have grace, but you also have to prove your worth. You've also got to earn your way into heaven through your actions. And so Paul is trying to set the people of Galatia free from that false idea. So St. Augustine, in this sermon, summed up the idea of Christian freedom in a short saying that has resonated with many throughout the ages. And in light of what the Apostle Paul has been teaching in the fifth chapter of Galatians, I think it's worth, worth a closer look today. He boiled down Christian freedom to this. Love God and do what you please. Love God and do what you please. That'd fit nicely on a bumper sticker, wouldn't it? Why do you think a saying like that would resonate with people? It seems to give a lot of latitude to what we as followers of Jesus Christ can choose to do with our life. It kind of leaves our options wide open. If we can just love God and do what we please, we've retained a lot of freedom. And it does seem to put a primary emphasis on loving God which you may recall when Jesus was asked, what is the most important command? How did he respond? He quoted Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, where he said the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself on these things the law hinges. Everything in the law hangs on these two things. So there's a lot to love about this statement. But just looking at it on the surface, it should also raise some questions perhaps, some concerns. If you're familiar with the heart of man, you know exactly how wicked our hearts can be. You, you know exactly how off track our desires can get. The heart of man is corrupt. It is exceedingly wicked. It is self-deceptive and it deceives others. So my love for God and what I want to do are not always compatible concepts and ideas. So there seems to be a great deal of risk in declaring that those who love God should have the freedom to simply do whatever they please. Sometimes it takes a little more than seven words to really get an idea across in such a way that it doesn't do more harm than good. Now I I endorse Augustine's statement. We're going to come back to it at the end of the sermon. But let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 because I think that Paul and Augustine are in some ways talking about the same things here. Chapter 5 opened with this idea that it is for freedom that Jesus Christ has set us free. In light of this freedom, Paul urges the Galatians to be careful not to let themselves be enslaved again to any false doctrines that would take away from the grace that they had received in Jesus Christ. But Paul has more to say about this idea of freedom. So in chapter 5, we read together today, verse 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul continues to insist that the true believer has been delivered into a new state of freedom. Thanks to the grace that has been poured out on them through the loving work of Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, and I trust that many of you have here today, then you are called to this special kind of freedom. We need to acknowledge that the opposite is true as well. If you don't trust in Jesus, and I know that there are individuals here today that don't trust in Jesus, we pray that every day this room would be filled not with just people who proclaim the name of Christ, but for people who are curious about Jesus, for people who do not yet know the full counsel of the gospel, even for those who are contrary to the cross, that they would come and hear the word preached in truth. We acknowledge that if you do not have Jesus Christ here today, if you don't trust Him, whether you know it or not, you're not as free as you think you are. The sinful state that we are born in is a state that rules us. It is a state that causes us to follow after compulsions that in our minds we know are wrong, but when we see ourselves living out our lives, it's almost as if we have no power to stop ourselves from doing it. Without having Jesus as our mediator between God, the one who will wash our sins away and give us a new righteousness before the Lord, then the law of God, the commands of God's Bible serve as an ominous, overbearing prison warden to us. They are there to hold us to an incredibly high standard. One that we will fail. One which, when failed, is punishable by death. That is the natural state of man. We are not born sons and daughters of God. We're born into a rebellious state against God. Just like Adam and Eve sin in the garden, so too do every, does every human being rebel against the Lord and try to take His position from Him, tries to play the role of God in their own lives. But if you've found the answer to your sin in Jesus Christ, then you no longer need to see the law as this prison warden who determines your fate. By trusting in God's Son, your death sentence has been absolved. Somebody much holier than you has already died in your place He has already paid for your sin. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then you have been cleansed. Your case against, or God's case against you has been dismissed. A Christian's freedom is 100% dependent on the work of Jesus. Not one of us will enter into heaven based on the good deeds that we have done or based on our avoidance of bad deeds and sinful activities. We are righteous before the Lord God right now for one reason and one reason only. Because through grace, Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we could not live. And then offered that perfect life as a a substitute for us on the cross. Sacrificing himself, suffering in our place. And then through love, giving us this grace that we might receive it and become adopted children of God. Once that work applies to you, once the the work of Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection applies to you through faith, you are free from the judgment of condemnation. God is still a judge. He is still on His throne. But your case has been thrown out. He does not cease to have authority over you, but He is no longer angry at you for your sin and your failures. Your sins put to death and paid in full by the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you on the cross. That was all God's plan. That is God's design, and it has been from before God ever made human beings in His image. So God's wrath is no longer directed at those who have Jesus Christ. You are free from that punishment. That's one of the ways you've been made free. We've also learned from reading the Apostle Paul that you are free from the pressure to, have, to having to keep yourself saved. Your salvation is not something that was freely given but easily lost. Rather, your salvation is given to you by God and it is preserved for you by God. It's not up to you to keep it steady, to keep it up, to maintain it. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a guarantee. Your identity has been transformed forever. You're a new creation. You're free from the responsibility of being good enough be loved by God. He has chosen you and He will do what it takes to keep you near to Him. You are free also, Christian, to follow the Lord and to live according to His will for your life. You don't have to give in to the sin any longer that you used to be powerless to fight off. The temptation that used to run rampant in you is no longer holding the keys to your kingdom. You're ruled by God now, not by your sin. You are not defenseless. The power of the Holy Spirit gives you all that you need to win the victory over your sin. So you're free from living a compelled life where you have no choice. This new freedom a believer has in Christ comes with an array of blessings and joy. and We've been celebrating that over the last several weeks. Now when we think of freedom, though, we think of opportunity, don't we? you think of being free, that means that your options are open. The future is wide open. When you got your driver's license, think back to that time, whether it was the first try or the fourth try for some of you, when you got that driver's license and you were no longer limited in travel by the range that your BMX would take you, You could now get in your car and drive and go on long-distance road trips and visit people that live far away. You had a new sense of opportunity. Life was opening up wider for you. You could do way more things than you used to be able to when you were relying relying on your parents to take you where you needed to go. If you've ever been in financial debt, you've ever gotten yourself in, in money trouble, and you worked hard and you sacrificed and you held back and you were disciplined and you finally got out of that financial debt, Isn't there a sense of freedom knowing that you have new opportunities? That you no longer have to send a big chunk of your paycheck to that credit card company every month or to pay off that loan. But now you have money that you can use however the Lord leads you to use. That you've got opportunities now that before your life's choices were very limited and now you have way more things that you can do because of that freedom. So freedom gives you opportunities that you didn't have before. And the question that naturally follows is, What do you do with those opportunities? How will you make use of your new freedom that you have in Christ Jesus? Paul is writing this whole section here in the book of Galatians because there is both a right and a wrong answer to that question. How will you make use of your freedom? It is for freedom that Christ has set Christians free. But that doesn't mean that you are now free to do anything that your little heart desires. There are those who have taken the idea of Christian freedom so far that they no longer view the commandments of Scripture as having any forceful bearing on their lives whatsoever. The idea behind that mentality is this. The grace of Jesus Christ is such a radical, life-altering thing that we have been given absolute freedom from worrying about the difference between right and wrong. Nothing that we could possibly do once called by Christ, can have a negative impact on us because it's all been paid for on the cross already. Now this way of thinking that's sometimes referred to as hyper-grace leads to several problems. Those who overemphasize the freedom that we have in grace claim that believers don't need to repent anymore. That that's something that you do one time to get into the kingdom and then repentance doesn't matter at all because all of our sin has been paid for in full. So why would we need to confess our sin to God? Why would we need to repent and feel guilty about the the ways that we we err against God? Now there seems to be some truth in that, but when we look at the full counsel of Scripture, this picture comes into greater focus. We remember the, the chapters in Revelation where God is sending through John, his apostle, these vivid images these pictures of God's will for seven different churches throughout the region. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And we see that in nearly every one of those seven letters that God delivers to the churches, things that those churches needed to understand, things they needed to respond to and acknowledge, in almost every one of those letters, He encourages, He gives them credit for the things they're doing well, and then He calls them specifically to repent for what those churches are doing poorly. To repent of the sins that are lingering in those congregations, that they have not allowed the Holy Spirit to work out of them to that point. What about the command in James 5.16, where James says that we are to confess our sins to one another. Why? So that we may be healed. Why would we need to confess to one another if repentance is no longer a part of the Christian's vocabulary? If that is now extinct, if we did it one time and it's done and we don't ever have to repent again, why would James call us to confess our sin to one another? What would be the benefit and the blessing of that? That just sounds confusing. We start to see that repentance is not just a one-time thing, but it's a way of life. It It is an attitude that we have when we are walking in the Lord, that even though we know our sin is forgiven and it can no longer kill us spiritually, that it is real... And it can affect our relationship with one another and our closeness with our God. Repentance is a crucial element to our walk of faith. First John 1, 8 through 8-10. And some of the, those who are, would fall into this category of hyper-grace, and I don't know anybody who calls himself a part of the hyper-grace movement, so it's, not, it's really a word we use to describe people who have kind of taken an idea too far. But they would say that 1 John is a book written to people who aren't even believers yet. But if you read the whole book, you see encouragement, encouragement to those who are believers. John is trying to show them how they can have confidence that their belief is true. And that confidence stems from obedience to the Lord. And so it says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what do we read here from God's own scripture? This is not some man's philosophy. This is inspired word. We learn here that confessing our sin to God is important. Even though we have been forgiven, even though we have been washed clean of the guilt and the wrath of God is not on us anymore, when we walk in ways that we have no business walking in, confession is still good for us. Repentance is still an important part of our walk with the Lord God. You don't have to go and do that through a priest. You don't have to come to your pastor and repent to him. You have a mediator in Jesus Christ who hears your prayer, who knows the confessions of your heart. And when you have guilt for the things that you have done, that is not necessarily deception. When I break my father's heart, I should feel bad about that. But this righteous sadness that God puts into my heart is remedied by the grace of the cross. I know that the Lord has overcome my sin and I know that if I trust in Him, He will bring me to victory in life. From the hyper-grace perspective, how a person behaves is not considered to be as important as what a person believes. Believers don't need to waste too much time on do this don't do that, making a list of rules to follow or don't follow. It doesn't matter how we behave, it matters what we hold to be true. That's the perspective of those who would fall into that hyper-grace category. Christianity is about Christ. It's not about me, so whether I live holy or not isn't what matters. What matters is the righteousness of Christ. And that sounds so very pious on the surface. But remember, you are called after that Christ. If you are a Christian, you bear the name of the one who stands as the Son of God, who represents all that is holy and good and true. You now represent Him. In John fourteen fifteen, Jesus defined true love of Christ as obedience to His commands. He is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, says John 4. So if we live in sin as if there's no consequence to our action, we are not living in the truth. We are not acknowledging the fact that the God we worship hates sin and loves people, so He wants to pull people away from that sin, which is so destructive to them and so disgraceful to the name of God. If God is our loving Father, he, we will respect His authority and fear His chastisement. The title of Father carries significance to us. It means that He rules not only the kingdom of heaven, but our individual lives as well. He has every right to lay down boundaries. He has every right to give consequences to us when we ignore Him and act as if we are the Father of the house. This loving God cares too much to let His children run rampant in sin and just say, oh, grace covers it, it's okay. The process of sanctification that so many of you are familiar with, this process whereby God causes us to decrease and Him to increase in us, whereby we become more and more like Jesus as we walk in faith and learn His Word and trust it better. This process of sanctification is not just some esoteric spiritual exercise. It has very practical ramifications. The believer who used to be cruel to his wife prior to Christ, but has now trusted in Jesus, should not be cruel to her anymore. He has been transformed in such a way that now he can see how offending her and hurting her heart is an offense to God as well. So he should not be content to say, I'm forgiven now, and then continue to treat her roughly. Rather, he should see the love and the tender heart of Christ and determine in his heart that with the help of God, he can love her that way. There should be change there. And this takes time, I understand that. It doesn't happen overnight. But every Christian should desire that God would get into their business, would get into their lives and begin to work out for them the things that need to change now that they trust in the Lord, now that they have a king who sits on high and rules their life in love and in truth. The believer who was a slave to alcohol prior to being set free by Jesus should by no means welcome that slave master back into their life. Christ is their king now. And no substance can be allowed to rule them. With the help of the Savior, what used to be compulsion, which used to be automatic, can now be overcome by grace. And yes, that can be a struggle and it can take time. These things we battle out in truth. But we don't just simply sit back with our bottle in our hand and say, I'm so grateful that I have grace and take another drink. We battle our sin. We we do battle against what is wicked in us. The believer who had a stubborn and proud heart is not invited to bring that heart with them into heaven. Rather, they are invited to let the Lord prune that stubbornness out of them through that process of sanctification. That they might might be made new, not just in position, but in practice as well. From the hyper-grace perspective, those Christians who confront moral issues who stand for truth and insist that believers should walk in the light, are often seen as legalistic and are compared to the New Testament Pharisees that Jesus constantly confronted. This mindset naturally devolves though, this mindset of of bitterness towards laws and regulations, this mindset that we have grace. Don't don't tell me how to live my life. I, I have freedom in the Lord now. I can do whatever I want. This mindset naturally devolves into a liberal, spineless faith that has no true voice against the darkness because it refuses to stand with Jesus against sin. We go back to the testimony of Scripture and we see in Matthew chapter 18 this wonderful instruction from Christ to His church. And what does this instruction tell the church how to do? It tells the church how to deal with sin so that the body of Christ might maintain its health so that the body of Christ might become healthier than it is, we confront brothers and sisters in, in sin in love and in truth, gently, because we desire for them to walk in a way that better represents the grace by which they were saved. The Apostle Paul, whom those who who are would fall into this hyper grace category, they often see the Apostle Paul as their hero because he talks so freely about this this grace that saves us and washes us free and gives us this freedom. But if they read all of Paul, if they understand the full counsel that God gave to us through that wonderful apostle, they would see that in so many of his letters, what is Paul doing? He's helping churches that have fallen into patterns of sin that are affecting their witness to the world, that are affecting their closeness to God, that are threatening the unity that they have one to another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was not afraid To stand in the truth. He was not ashamed of the gospel. In love, and that's the key here, in love, he was never afraid to confront sin. One last thing that often flows out of this hyper-grace mentality is that if grace is all that really matters to us, the work of Jesus is paramount, and we don't really think about the full counsel of God, then the Old Testament can become very marginalized. The great, vast revelation that God has given to His people through the prophets and through the law and through the covenants of the Old Testament, through the songs and, and the wonderful, wonderful words of wisdom that we have in the Proverbs, they all become pushed to the side because those who are involved with this hyper-grace mentality really only want to hear about how free they are in Christ. They don't want to hear about laws and regulations. They don't want to hear about the repercussions of straying from the Lord God or how... How much it can hurt God's people when they ignore what God wants for them. And yet, we read from the, the pages of God's scripture in the New Testament how important the Old is to us. We read about the travelers on the road to Emmaus just after Jesus had risen from the grave and how this mysterious figure appears to them. They don't recognize who he is, he is veiled, he is disguised, but it's actually Jesus risen from the dead. And he asks them what's going on, and they say, Well, you haven't heard of. Have we been living under a rock? Jesus, this prophet, came and said that he was the Son of God, but then the high priest put him to death. They crucified him and he was buried, but now the tomb's empty and we don't know what happened, if somebody stole the body away or, 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 or what's gone on. And, and this figure on the road to Emmaus says to them the truth. And how does he show the truth to them? Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets meaning the Old Testament revelation, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So if you love the grace of Jesus Christ, if you are grateful that he has set you free, you cannot afford to turn a blind eye to the Old Testament. It is the way by which God revealed himself to us before he even came. So we cannot look at this book as two testaments, one that is... Imminently important to us, and one of which is nice and just kind of tags along and has historical value, but no practical value in our lives. It is word to us. It is bread to us. We are nourished by its truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, and the woman of God, is included in that, may be complete, equipped for every good work. This freedom that Jesus has won for us is a precious freedom, church. It is worth defending. But if our freedom has come from a love for God, if that's how we receive this freedom in the first place, that God has put into us a heart that will receive Him and love Him and trust in His plan for us, then we cannot see this freedom as a veiled excuse to go back to doing sinful things that used to hold us captive. We are free, but we are not allowed to do whatever we want with this freedom. And so the Apostle Paul urges us, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The Apostle Paul strives for clarity here by telling us that freedom is not permission to behave selfishly, Behaving according to the flesh means doing what our desires tell us to do without referring to what God wants us to do. So freedom is not just a matter of what we do. It's a matter of what we love, church. It's a matter of what we love. The things that we do give us a dependable picture of what we really care about. Your actions are going to tell the truth on you. They're going to tell the world what really matters to you. By holding ourselves accountable for the things that we do, we are saying amen to the biblical truth that we cannot separate our beliefs from our actions. That who we are is not just about what we believe, but it's about what we do as well. How we live according to those beliefs. The Christian saved by grace obeys law, but not to earn salvation. They obey the law because they were saved by grace, and now that grace has given them a greater love for the things of God. He loves the one who gives the law, who trusts in Jesus Christ. And he has come to see that the law reveals the heart of this God who saved him. Look again at Galatians 5, 13-14. Paul points out that if we love God, then the logical progression is that we will love the things that God loves. More specifically, we will love the people that God loves. We will learn to love one another. And this is going to be the dominating theme in so much of what we're going to read as we finish out the book of Galatians, that Paul has in his heart not this desire to just make people behave in rigid ways for the sake of law, but that the law is a beautiful gift that has been given to us so that we might do what God has called us to do and love one another the way that Jesus has loved His church. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do we love the things that God loves? We, we love the things that God loves by serving them. There's such a great irony in that passage where Paul speaks boldly of the freedom of a Christian and then he says that we are to serve one another. The word therefore serve is the verb word of doulos which means slave in the New Testament. That we should offer ourselves up as a slave to one another in love. That we should be willing to serve one another radically at the expense of our own comfort, at the expense of our flesh so that our brothers and sisters in the Lord would be taken care of, that they would be looked after, that they would be nourished in the word of God. Here we are reminded that the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength is tightly linked to the second greatest commandment that we are to love one another. And don't miss the impact of what Paul says here in verse 14. He says that the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word. What is that word? Love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Before we can answer the question What does a Christian do with all this freedom? We need to answer the question, what is the law for now that we have grace? Now that we have been changed by Jesus, what role does the law play for us? Paul gives us the answer here. The law is to help us love God better. It's to help us love one another better. Do we need to be cautious of this law? Do we need to push away this law? Do we need to Guard our freedoms from this law? No, because this law is here to help us. It is here, as long as it is used rightly, to be a blessing to us and to the church that we are a part of. When we love one another, church, we do more than just feel affectionately towards one another. We do more than simply hope that the people around us have a good life. When we love one another, we lay down what we have for the sake of what they can have. That's that's true love. We sacrifice so that someone else can be blessed and benefit. So true love should be more important to us than, than freedom to do whatever we want. I have uh, had the, the joy of watching this church love each other truly over the last several weeks. The ways that you have reached out to each other in care and concern, the way that you have desired to bless one another, you've provided meals and food for one another, the ways that you have come alongside those who were struggling through the difficult, financially difficult Christmas time, and you've met each other's needs. What a beautiful picture of love in action. Love is not some emotion that we feel. It's not just some tickly something that happens in our stomach that we can't define. Love is a verb. It is, it is an action that we partake of in response to the love that has been showed to us by God. Love Shows up at the bedside of the one who is sick. Love remembers those who have had losses and seeks to meet their needs. Love doesn't just say, I'll pray for you. Love stops and puts a hand on the shoulder and lifts that individual up in in sincere prayer. True love doesn't just leave a brother in sin. It comes alongside and says, how do I help you trust the Lord more with this struggle that you're going through? In each of those examples, the person who truly loved saw the needs of another as more important than their own personal comfort. They cared enough about another individual to put their own desires aside and live out graceful obedience to God by serving their brother or sister-in-law. To be absolutely certain, the law is a burden if it is used in ways that it ought not, not to be used. But it is not intrinsically evil, nor does it need to be rejected. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 8-11 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. That last sentence is key. Think about that for a minute. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. What is the gospel? The gospel is that you can't make it to Christ on your own. You can't earn your way to heaven. But God loved you so much that He left heaven to come and be with you. The gospel is the good news that your place in God's family has been purchased by the blood of the Savior. So that your salvation is no longer something that you must acquire through your tough work and, and striving, but rather it was a gift. And now in 1 Timothy 1 verse 11 reminds us that this law is good if it is used rightly and that it is in full accordance with with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which Paul had been entrusted. So the law does not contradict grace. It is a complement to grace. It helps us because grace makes us a people of love. And by looking at God's law, we see how He loves us and how He intends for us to love one another. Those who trust Jesus live in accordance to sound doctrine and the gospel of glory, which is not in conflict with the law. So we cannot teach love without teaching obedience to Scripture. Paul teaches us the proper application of the freedom that God has granted to us. Don't use your freedom for the law as an opportunity, freedom from the law as an opportunity to sin, but use your freedom to express true love to one another. Paul warns us in verse 15 that what will happen if we say we love God, but ignore the law? which exists to foster true love between God and man, and between man and man. He says, do not bite and devour one another, lest you consume one another. He has an eye to the unity of his church. He knows that if this church rejects the law, if they push back against these false teachers too hard, and they say, well, the law must be terrible, it must be bad for us, let's live in free license, let's do whatever we want to do, then they will be doing just as much harm to the church as those false teachers who came and said they had to earn their salvation. When we all live under the standard of God's word, our fellowship is preserved by the truth of God that we mutually respect, whom we corporately adhere to. Because I love you, church, as your pastor, because I care about you, I love the law of God. I love it because honoring the law of God's word helps to safeguard us from our natural selfishness. It guards us against our nature, which would have us sin against one another if we were not under God's watchful care and direction. It reminds us that God's love for us was a sacrificial love. And since we value that love so much, we ought to replicate it in our lives the best we can by sacrificing for one another, for laying our lives down for our brothers and sisters. We are far less likely to bite and devour one another, to consume one another, when we refuse to bear false testimony against each other, right? when we keep the command to not lie to one another, when we are honest and upfront, when we are caring about the truth, we are far less likely to consume one another, when we love one another by refusing to covet our neighbor's possessions, when we don't look at somebody who's in a higher tax bracket than us and, and have bitterness towards him because God chose to bless him in different ways than he blessed us. God's command says don't covet. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't covet your neighbor's spouse. Those are laws which guard us from being bitter towards one another. They help us to love anybody who walks through the door. It doesn't matter what our social status is. It doesn't matter how much economic blessing has been showered upon us or how much great economic need we have. We are to love one another. The law of God preserves the church through that. We love one another by honoring our father and mother. And the respect that we give to them should be in many ways like the respect that we give to God. He is our Father in heaven, so let us treat our Father on earth as a picture of that Father. Let us honor our mother and father and be grateful for all of those authorities that God puts into our lives that help to enforce His laws and keep the truth alive. Do you see how beneficial the law can be to us as a community of believers? If we neglect to see the beautiful things that we have received from our Savior regarding the law and morality, our sinful actions will hurt us and will jeopardize the holiness of his church. Before we wrap up, I know we're getting a little bit long here, I want to take a moment to return to Augustine's statement, which we considered at the beginning of the sermon. Augustine said, love God and do what you please. To see what Augustine meant by this phrase, it helps to know where it came from. Augustine was preaching in the book of 1 John chapter 4. And like the Apostle Paul, Augustine was in a period in his life in which the church in northern Africa where he ministered was being heavily influenced by a group of false teachers called the Donatists. And in his preaching, Augustine was seeking to push back against their negative influence. In many ways, he was doing just what Paul was doing to the churches in Galatia. And so as he says this phrase, I want to put it into the context of his sermon. These are all of Augustine's words. He says, once and for all, I give you this one short command. Love God and do what you please. If you hold your peace, hold your peace out of love. If you cry out, cry out in love. If you correct someone, correct them out of love. If you spare them, spare them out of love. Let the root of love be in you. Nothing can spring from it but good. So you see what Augustine is trying to say is that God and love for God must be primary for us. It must be the first thing in our lives. And if that is in place, if we love the Lord God more than anything else, if we love Him more than the desires of our flesh, that unlocks the door to a better freedom than what we would have sought out before we had our hearts changed by Jesus. When we love God, that love needs to impact everything that we do. So love God and do what you please is not a true statement if you flip the order around. Do what you please, and by the way, don't forget to love God. No, 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 no. we must love God. And if we truly love God, that cannot help but affect the things that we please to do. That begins to reshape what we love and the kinds of freedoms we will seek after. Because the reason we are now free to do what we want is to learning, <clears throat> is that learning to love God instead of competing with God has redefined what we want. When we truly love God, we want the things that He wants for us. And we want what He wants for others as well. He wants holiness. He wants purity. He wants loving fellowship. And those are the things that we should strive for as well. Love God and do what you please. It's also not a true statement if you define love the way the world defines love. Because the world thinks of love as this emotion that comes and goes. The world thinks of love as this feeling of affection and does not see that true love is much deeper and significant than that. If you kind of love God, meaning you feel good when you sing worship songs to Him, and praying calms you down a little bit, and you like that He gives you blessings sometimes and He lets you live in His world not really love. And there is so much more that God is calling me to. Love is wanting what is best for someone and being willing to apply yourself to achieve that for them. So if you love the Lord God, you want what is best for Him. What is best for God? It is best for God's name to be proclaimed to the world. It is best for Him to be glorified in every circumstance and instance. Do you want that for Him? Are you willing to set aside your needs so that those things are accomplished? So that God is magnified and honored and lifted up in this dark world. We cannot do what we please unless, in loving God, we have come to embrace His will as the best thing that can happen to us and the best thing that can happen to someone else. When we do embrace that, we will no longer see God's laws and His commandments as a threat to our freedoms. We will see God's commandments as God's strategy for us to serve one another in love. To quote the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 16, he says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. Um, I think we're out of time, so we're going we're gonna to skip the last song today. But let's bow our heads together. I'd like to pray for you before we dismiss you to go.